you're seeking biblical wisdom and understanding in these difficult and trying times, and you recognize the power of God's Word to delve deep into the issues of the heart, then welcome to Biblical Counseling Today with Dr. John Kwasney, husband, father, counselor, author, and teacher. Join us for Christ-centered, gospel-driven truth concerning our individual, marital, and parenting struggles. This is Biblical Counseling Today. When I say the word evil, what image comes to your mind? Satan? Hitler? A serial killer or rapist? Usually we reserve the label of evil for the absolute worst of the worst, something above and beyond normal sin. But this narrow use of the concept of evil is not a true biblical understanding. According to God's word, evil is the absence of good. So we really just have two categories, good and evil. Not good, bad, and then evil. Evil is the opposite of good. Of course, as we referenced in the first episode on the problem of suffering, there are those who deny the existence of evil altogether or see evil as something that is necessary to balance out the good. For us to rightly understand suffering in general and our particular state of suffering, we need to know why and how evil exists in the first place. Because without evil, there'd be no suffering at all. So let's jump right in and go to God's Word. We'll begin in what might be an unfamiliar place, the book of Habakkuk. Listen to these first few verses of Habakkuk chapter 1. It reads, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the prophet Habakkuk, he ministered in the southern kingdom of Judah. Ever since God's people Israel were divided into north and south, the northern kingdom was pretty much evil all the time. Judah, the southern kingdom, tended to have some righteous kings who led the people to worship God righteously. But over time, Judah became just about as evil as Israel. During Habakkuk's time as a prophet of God, the nation had declined greatly spiritually. You hear what Habakkuk is witnessing. Violence, destruction, strife, and contention. He says that the law is paralyzed and there is no justice. Justice is perverted because of evil people. Does that sound familiar to what is happening in our world today? And no, it's not been just since Trump became president. We have witnessed this throughout the history of our country and of this world. Habakkuk is crying out to understand the problem of evil. Much like the psalmist, he doesn't know why evil exists if God exists. He especially doesn't get why evil exists among the people of God. So that's what we'll work on today for Habakkuk and for all of us, an understanding of the problem of evil and its link to our everyday suffering. 
Habakkuk is tired of all the evil going on in Judah. It's just plain wrong. Have you ever felt like this? He's frustrated that God has given him eyes to see it all. Why can't he just be blissfully ignorant? Just go to work all day, go home, sit on the couch, and watch Netflix. But no, Habakkuk is eaten up with anger about what he sees, righteously indignant with all the evil in the world. So the prophet asks a question in the form of an accusation against God. Why do you idly look at wrong? Why, God, why don't you do something, anything about all this evil? To sum it up, this is one of those universal human questions. If God exists, why does evil exist? To put it another way, where is God in all of this evil, in all of this suffering, in all of my suffering? Do you know how God answers Habakkuk, how he responds to his heart's cry? It is quite the shocking answer. Listen to these next few verses, starting in verse 5. The Lord responds and says, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome, Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. With very powerful, graphic, descriptive language, God tells Habakkuk that he's going to deal with all this evil he's seeing in Judah. What's he going to do? Well, he's going to take an even more evil group of people, the Chaldeans, also known as the Babylonians, and he will use them to punish all the evil in Judah. In other words, God will use evil to defeat evil. Does this blow your mind? Well, it blew the prophet's mind. Listen to his next question slash accusation against God in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 1. Habakkuk says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? All right, in that very poetic language, all Habakkuk is crying out is this. How in the world can you use evil Babylon for your good purposes? More generally, Habakkuk is asking, how can a holy God use evil to accomplish anything in his world? Why doesn't he just get rid of all the evil in this world? Do you understand the prophet's struggle Because when we're paying attention to all the suffering in this life, we have this same struggle. 
To put it in categorical terms, Habakkuk's struggle is with the problem of evil versus the character of God. On one hand, we have the problem of evil. Circumstances seem to contradict what Habakkuk knew about God. On the other hand, we have the character of God. Habakkuk believes in the goodness and holiness of God. So he struggles mightily to reconcile God's character and God's plan, God's character and God's actions. Where is God in all this evil? All right, so with these questions of Habakkuk's in our minds, which again are universal questions about the problem of evil, let's get a firm understanding of the problem itself. Now, using the good practices of formal logic, we have to begin with a clear statement of the problem. What is the real problem here, clearly stated for our minds and hearts? So here it is. If God is great and God is good, then why would he allow evil to exist in his world? I'll say it one more time. If God is great and God is good, then why would he allow evil to exist in his world? That basic question, logically speaking, gives rise to three more questions. One, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? In other words, is he not then impotent in some way? Second question, is God able to prevent evil but not willing? Is he not then malevolent, a sort of evil himself? Then third, is God both able and willing to prevent evil? Why then is there evil? Okay, are you with me? I'm purposely trying to go slow through this whole question of evil so we can dig down deep and get to the heart of the matter. So we move on to think about the issues involved in these questions, this big question of evil and these sub-questions of God's goodness and the presence of evil. So issue number one is understanding good and evil biblically. Now we go back to God's word, of course, in Genesis 2 this time. Genesis 2 verse 9 reads, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So from the very beginning, we have the knowledge of good and evil set before us in the form of a tree. Now think about that for a moment and listen to verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, Adam, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. We know these verses, but think about it. This tree was to remain untouched, its fruit uneaten. Why? Why didn't God want Adam and Eve to eat from this tree? We tend to focus on the fact that it was a test somehow of their obedience. That's true. But did God want them to have a knowledge of good and evil or only a knowledge of good? I would submit to you that they were supposed to know God, which is to know good. That was their whole purpose in life, to know, have a knowledge of God, and thereby a knowledge of good. Well, that brings us to our definitional understanding of good and evil. 
Here it is, as mentioned in the intro. Good is all that is consistent with the character and will of God. Good is all that is consistent with the character and will of God. Evil is all that is contrary to the character and will of God. Now hear that again. Good is all that is consistent with the character and will of God, and evil is all that is contrary to the character and will of God. Those basic definitions often lead us to this important question. If God made everything, did he make evil? I get this question all the time, especially when I'm teaching children, as you can imagine. It's a tough question, even for adults, that can be answered in a variety of ways. But here, I think, is how to best look at it biblically. First, God could not make evil because he is not evil. Satan is called the evil one, not God. God is too holy to create anything evil. It is the opposite of his character. But second, I would push a little farther. God did not create evil because it's not some sort of substance that has to be created. Evil is simply a lack of good. The best analogy I know of is comparing good and evil, as Scripture does, to light and darkness. Light has to be created to dispel the darkness, because darkness is just the lack of light. You don't ever take a fully lit room and create some sort of darkness in it. Take a bucket of darkness and pour it into a fully lit room. What you do is you take a dark room and create a light source to get rid or dispel the darkness. Here's a very long quote by C.S. Lewis that really helps us on the matter of good and evil. I will take it slow, but listen carefully to these words by Lewis. He says, evil was never made. Evil does not have the kind of substantial existence that good has. Now, this does not mean that evil is an unreal thing in the sense of imaginary thing that is projected into the universe by the human mind. It means that although it is not wrong to picture man standing in a junction with a signpost that points to good in one direction and evil in another, it is absolutely wrong to imagine that the evil road leads anywhere at all. The good sign points, we may say, to a solidly constructed city with a highway leading to it. The evil sign is deceptive in that it points only to a morass for the road peters out. It only looks like a valid alternative. Indeed, if we did not allow ourselves to be deceived, we should recognize that there is only one road. If you leave it, you wander off into the desert. God made the city and God made the road. The appearance of an alternative road is an illusion. You can stay on the road and get somewhere, or you can leave it and get lost. That is the choice life offers. And then listen to this uh, sentence by him. There is no evil that is not goodness corrupted or goodness perverted. The more you search for evil as something in itself substantial, the more elusive it seems. Again, he says that is not to question the reality of evil. Evil is real enough but only by derivation, by parasitism, by parody. When the little boy kicks the kitten, the action is not physically different from kicking a football. The leg is a good leg. The movement is a good movement. 
the impulse to exercise himself is healthy. Evil can be located in exploiting those good resources and impulses to an unworthy end. It is not kicking that is evil, but the perversion of a healthy act to a cruel purpose. I really love that last illustration, don't you? Lewis has a great handle on defining evil for what it is. Again, not something created as some sort of equivalent to good. It is the lack of good. It is the false reality. Now let's go on to issue two, understanding God's goodness biblically. That's clear from all of scripture. God is good. But what does that mean? Well, the goodness of God is the sum total of all his divine perfections. Things like love, grace, mercy, justice, righteousness. Listen to Psalm 107, verse 1. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Since God is good, the goodness of God is also God doing what is good. Here's another familiar verse about the goodness of God from Jesus himself in Mark chapter 10, verse 18. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. All good things flow from God. That also means that goodness is essential to God. Listen very closely. Without goodness, God would not be God. Here's more scripture, a couple more passages from Exodus. Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Again, God is summed up by his goodness. The truth about his goodness continues in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him, that is Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. You hear it, don't you? As God's goodness passes before Moses, it proclaims that God is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, loving, and faithful. This is the essence of all that is God and all that is good. If you think about it, we can only trust God because he is good. Which leads us to the next issue we need to understand biblically. Issue number three, we need to understand God's power biblically. This also goes to the heart of understanding evil. We must know that the Bible teaches that God is not just powerful, He is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. How does this connect to the problem of evil? Well, two things. First, God is able to do all things that are consistent with his nature and character. God is able to do all things that are consistent with his nature and his character. 
Listen to Job chapter 42, verse 2. Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's all power. God cannot be thwarted by anything, not even evil. Then there's number two. God cannot do things contrary to his nature. God cannot do things contrary to his nature. We see that in James 1 verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So again, our all-powerful God cannot do anything evil. He is unable to do evil. All right, let's make a stopping point right here just to sum up what we know about God and good and evil so far in four propositions. God exists. God is good. God is all-powerful, omnipotent, and evil exists. The question is, how do we stand on these four truths and honestly address the issue of suffering in a biblical way? These four statements, these four truths must be the foundation for a right view of evil and suffering in our lives. We have to hold on to all of them. Hear them again. God exists. God is good. God is all-powerful, omnipotent, and evil exists. Every time you are suffering personally, you must hold on to these four truths yourself. If you let go of any of them, you will not have the right view of the problem of suffering. Now, it's important to know that Rabbi Kushner, who we will talk about much more in the next few episodes, remember he's the guru of the problem of suffering and has been for decades, he actually tries to add a fifth reality or a fifth truth to this list. Here's what it is. He says, fifth truth, good people exist that don't deserve suffering. Now think about what that supposed truth does to the other four. Can you actually hold on to the first four truths from Scripture and then add this one that good people exist who don't deserve suffering? Now, we'll talk about the true nature of man later on, but the answer is no. It totally changes your solution to the problem of suffering if you add just that one other thing. Which takes us to our last section for this episode on the evil of suffering, and this is just part one of the evil of suffering. To get a biblical solution on evil, we need to first reject unbiblical solutions. So here we go, unbiblical solutions. And we'll go back to our 10 easy answers from the last episode uh, to help us with these unbiblical solutions. They really all fit nicely into these categories because each one denies one of those four propositions. So again, these are unbiblical things we have to let go of. And the first is a denial of God's existence. The answer to the problem of evil is that there is no God. This is the answer given by atheism, demythologism, and psychologism. Evil exists because there is no God. The problem, of course, to claim that there is no God is serious self-deception. Psalm 10 verse 4 puts it this way. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. 
all his thoughts are, there is no God. This is serious delusion and a very cheap answer to the problem of suffering. One big reason that atheism is a cheap answer, this comes from Peter Kreeft. He says, if there is no God, no infinite goodness, where did we get the idea of evil? Where did we get the standard of goodness by which we judge evil as evil? Worst of all, if the universe is so bad, how on earth did human beings ever come to attribute it to the activity of a wise and good creator? The very presence of these ideas in our minds, that is the idea of evil, this of goodness and of God as the origin and standard of goodness, needs to be accounted for. Big bangs and bumping molecules just won't do it. All right, the second unbiblical answer is this, denying God's power, the denial of God's power. The answer to the problem of evil then is that God is limited by nature's laws, which is known as scientism, and that God is not all-powerful at all. Now, this is Rabbi Kushner's view, who has, again, influenced millions with it. In Kushner's version, he calls it a pockets of chaos theory. And here's an extended quote of what he says. He says, God didn't quite finish his creating by closing time on the afternoon of the sixth day. Creation, the process of replacing chaos with order, is still going on. The world is mostly an orderly, predictable place, but pockets of chaos remain. Bad things happen in corners of the universe where God's creative light has not yet penetrated. God finished his work of creating eons ago and left the rest to us. Residual chaos, chance and mischance, things happening for no reason will continue to be with us. In that case, we'll simply have to learn to live with it, sustained and comforted by the knowledge that the earthquake and the accident, like the murder and the robbery, are not the will of God, but represent the aspect of reality which stands independent of his will and which anger and saddens God, even as it angers and saddens us. I'm angered and saddened by that whole quote. But let's finish that. According to Kushner, we can go to God supposedly because he didn't bring this suffering upon us. Our misfortunes are none of his doing, he says, and so we can turn to him for help. Our question will not be Job's question, God, why are you doing this to me? But rather, God, see what's happening to me? Can you help me? We will turn to God not to be judged or forgiven, not to be rewarded or punished, but to be strengthened and comforted. Take a little time and maybe even rewind. Do you see the problem with this line of thinking? What is it? Well, the big problem among many is how can you turn to a God for help that is not all-powerful to help? Again, Kushner is an example of this predominant secular thought. Some other solutions under this umbrella of denying the all-powerful God is the answer to the problem of evils that there are two gods, and neither has all the power. They share power. That's dualism. Or the answer to the problem of evil is that there are many gods, and all are mixtures of good and evil. Remember old-time polytheism. Well, the problem, again, with all this thinking, why it's unbiblical, is that the Bible reveals only one God. 
The Bible does not reveal in any shape, matter, or form a limited God. But the Bible does reveal over and over and over again an all-powerful God. So this is not a good answer for the problem of suffering. And then the third unbiblical answer is a denial of God's goodness. Listen to how these answers deny God's goodness. Pantheism says the answer to the problem of evil is that evil is a part of God. So that again denies that God is good. Satanism, of course, says the answer to the problem of evil is that Satan is God. That again denies God's goodness. Or deism says the answer to the problem of evil is that God doesn't care. If God doesn't care, he's certainly not good. Well, again, many problems with these thoughts and these principles and these ideas, but there's two things mainly. First, they depreciate evil. And second, the Bible says God is good. God is involved, not detached, according to God's word. And then the final unbiblical solution is this, the denial of evil. The answer to the problem of evil is that there is no evil. Remember, we see this in idealism, uh, illusionism, we call it. We find it in Christian science, Buddhism. Remember that Buddhism categorizes all suffering as simply related to our own desire. And Christian science, again, says it's an illusion. Well, the problem with this thinking is very clear. It contradicts the Bible. The Bible over and over shows that evil is real. And it flies in the face of everyone's reality, at least everyone who is in reality. So these four unbiblical solutions don't help us with the problem of evil at all. Well, this is a good place for us to stop in our discussion of the problem of evil. Just part one here. Whatever problem you're dealing with in your life right now, not one of those problems would be with you if it wasn't for the presence of evil. If it wasn't for the presence of our evil hearts, our evil world, our evil enemy. And yet, thanks be to God that he does exist and that he is good and that he is all-powerful. So we'll pick up with the problem, the evil of suffering, next time. Thank you for listening to Biblical Counseling Today with Dr. John Kwasney. This weekly podcast is supported by Biblical Counseling and Training Ministries, which you can learn more about at bctministries.com. If you have found yourself encouraged or challenged today, please share this podcast with your church, family, and friends. Rate us on iTunes and your social media outlets. It really helps. Until next time, may you enjoy the riches of God's compassionate grace and mercy in your life.